This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. We are sort of on location here in Chicago. So if you hear cars and trucks and banging and barking and all that stuff, that's just that's just the authentic, gritty feel of the city. And I am so excited to have on the show, once again, Allie Henney. Welcome. Hey, everybody. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. We are excited to hear more of your scintillating thoughts. And this topic is one that you have been writing about on social media and in blog posts and studying and thinking about. We got to talk about anti-racism. And that term, that term itself is is powerful. And it's becoming more and more sort of used, I think, at least in my work with with sort of race and justice. I didn't really hear that term early on, but now it's become more popular. Can you tell us about your exposure to to this phraseology, anti-racism, and unpack that a little bit for what it means? So I kind of bit this term from you, Jamar. I think it, I think it was you that, that maybe said it in a tweet or something like that. So I just sort of jumped off on it and was like, hey, this is a good way to talk about the work that we do. I received that. I received that. And so, yeah. So, so I'm going to break it down. You know, anti-racism. So to be anti means to be against something. I'm just, I'm using that seminary education right now. <laughs> anti means to be against something. And then racism. So anti-racism is that you're against racism. But it's more than that. I think that anti-racism is a posture inherently of resistance where a lot of people would say, I'm against racism for sure. Like I, like I don't want people to be racist. There's a lot of our white brothers and sisters that would, that would think of themselves as being against racism. But being anti-racist is more than just saying, I don't like racism. I don't participate in racism is actually resisting racism. So whenever I think about the anti-racism movement, I think about a movement of resistance. So it's not just in a kind of a neutral box of, well, we're just not going to do racist things and say racist things, and we're going to be upset whenever somebody does something racist, but it's actually saying there's more to that. And and going the step further and saying, not only are we not going to participate in racism, but we're actually going to resist. And I think that for Black people to be in an anti-racist posture, it's not just like a racially passive posture where it's like, Okay, well, there's, you know, people out here who are being racist, and I'm just kind of going to kind of say, well, that's it. That's just part of life. But actually taking a posture of resistance and saying, I'm not okay with the racism that I'm experiencing, and I'm going to do something in order to resist it, and I'm going to provoke people around me to do something to resist it. That's a great breakdown. I think I heard anti-racism. I've heard it here and there, but I know that um, one of the people who who's kind of popularizing the, the phraseology didn't come from him, but Ibram X. Kendi. Mm, and yeah. he wrote the book Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive uh, History of Racist Ideas. And that's a National Book Award winner. It's it's very thorough. It's several hundred pages long. So it's a commitment, but uh, well worth your time if you, if you want to learn about anti-racism, which is a phrase he uses. He's also writing a book to be released, I think, late in 2019 called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, so that's going to be, uh, that's going to be very interesting. But 
that 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 terminology anti-racist like you say anti being meaning standing against something is important and the way i typically explain it is uh a couple ways one there are racists there are anti-racists and then the mushy middle is the non-racist and so you can sort of think of a bell curve and the extremes on either side are relatively small groups and and the bulk of folks are in the middle and that bulk of folks would be non-racist and the other way i explain it is through uh, a, a metaphor used in why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria which is by beverly tatum and she's a social psychologist and she talks about a pedway and if you think of a pedway at the airport, it's like a it's like a conveyor belt for people. And so you get on the pedway and it's moving in a certain direction. So the racists are the people who are on the pedway and they're walking with the 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 motion of the pedway. So they're actually getting to their destination faster. Those are the active racists. They're, they use the N-word, burn crosses, put on hoods, don't like other people, and they're flat out about it. Then there's that big group of the non-racists where you're on the pedway. But you're not actively walking. You're just standing still. But guess what? That conveyor belt is still moving you toward the same direction because that's the momentum of the culture is toward white supremacy, is toward racism. So you don't have to actively do anything in order to participate and support a racist status quo. Then there are the non-racists. So those are people who are on this pedway. And they're not walking with it. They're not standing still, but they've actually turned around. They're walking against the grain in the other direction. They're going somewhere else and not to the same destination of a racist status quo. So that's how I explain anti-racism. And I find that's helpful, especially for white people, because in this world, if you listen to folks, it would seem like there are no racists ever anywhere. Because well, no. <laughs> it, it, nobody will, will say, oh, I can possibly be a racist or participate in racism because their understanding of racism is just that far side of the bell curve of uh, active racists, right? If that's your only understanding, then yeah, there's going to seem like there aren't many racists anymore. But if you understand what it means to be a non-racist, and I think that's where most people are. Then you start to unlock, okay, well, I'm not out there, you know, calling people racial slurs. I'm not out there, you know, barring the doors of the church for somebody of a different race. But I'm also not really actively working against it. And and that has to do, I think, a lot with the systemic aspect. So have you encountered this or is this something you talk about in in your work in terms of the difference between sort of like individual racism and, and structural or systemic yeah yeah absolutely and I think that those distinctions are are very important I really like the analogy of the pedway because I think that like you said for white people I think that it definitely illustrates very easily very very in kind of a compact way what the the different contours of the work are I think that whenever you start thinking about black people and blackness and kind of how we operate in it it can it, it sort of there's there's a whole other sphere. There's a whole other way to look at it because I think that obviously black people can't, we can be prejudiced, but we can't necessarily be racist. So, so, so I know we're, we're getting into a whole other thing here, here. but there's, but so those categories very much that the the anti-racist, non-racist, racist, those very easily apply to white people. But whenever you start talking about black people and people of color, I think that there's actually another kind of mushy middle category Mm, on that. And there, 
there, I think that that mushy middle category is what I like to call racially passive. Mm. So you have people of color who aren't anti-racist. They're not in the in the extreme of I'm going to go and work actively against racism. And they're not on the other extreme of I'm going to buy in fully wholesale to white supremacy and spout some of those talking points. But there's sort of this mushy middle that people of color can be in where they're where they're passive. Where and what that looks like practically is it's the people who are like, well, you know what, I've I don't think I've ever really experienced racism. Wow. Because and I've and I've heard this a lot, or their mindset is, well, it doesn't happen very often because in their mind, especially for black people, they're waiting for people to call them the N-word. They're looking for the segregation signs. They're looking for some of that Jim Crow type racism, which doesn't really exist. And as we know, racism has evolved and adapted. Mm. So that but they don't have the understanding of the ways that racism has evolved and adapted. And so they're in this space where they're really not helping the work of anti racism, because even sometimes they can even be counterproductive. But that's a whole other discussion right there. But there's this but there's this middle where there are people that are that are just passive and and they think that their their experiences definitely are valid. I don't want to invalidate anybody's experience where they say, well, I've never really experienced racism. I don't want to invalidate somebody's experience. But I would also challenge and say, well, what type of racism are you looking for whenever you say that you haven't experienced racism? Because I can be in the same spaces or have a similar experience and say that I maybe have experienced racism in some of the similar places and some similar circumstances that you've been in. So I, I question people whenever whenever they say if they haven't experienced it or whenever they think that it doesn't happen as often. So I have two questions and I want to see how you respond to them. Number one, what is racism? Because I think that has a big a lot to do with everything that that you were talking about when folks say they have or haven't experienced it mm-hmm. what is your definition of racism and two what do you say to people or to the charge that well you're a successful black woman i mean you're getting a, a graduate education you you've got food on the table nobody's holding you back because of your race or your skin color something like that so how would you address those So the first thing that I would say about racism is that I think that the easiest definition of racism is that it's prejudice plus power. So it is everybody can have prejudice. Everybody can have bias. Everybody can act in a manner that is prejudicial. But who has the power? Who has the power to take their prejudices and oppress people? Who has the power to take to have their prejudices actually result in people's death. And there's only one racial group in the United States that ha- that has enough power in their prejudice to be able to have a, a child play with a toy gun in a park mm. and somebody see that child play with a toy gun in a park and call the police and the police shoot that child virtually on sight. Mm. There's only one group of people whose prejudices will allow that type of action. There's only one group of people's prejudices that will allow people to stand at a, at a national monument and and go back and forth with some people and their and their actions be be viewed as oh but they were but they were being they were they were being made fun of they were being whatever and they be viewed as innocent. There's only one racial group that gets to do that. There's only there's only one racial group that that really gets to to benefit from their prejudices and that's and that's people that are in the quote unquote white race right. so certainly 
doing. There can be people who are prejudiced. There can be people who people of color who can say things that are just awful about other people of color, about other racial and ethnic groups, and that's terrible, but nobody really possesses the power except for one group. And so whenever I define racism, I think about racism in that sphere of it's not only prejudice, but it's also power. Yeah. And then adding to that the systemic aspect of of that. And so then who is able to create the systems or who's governing the systems, who's in charge, who's who's in once again the seats of power. And so that's how I would define racism. There maybe could be some things that you could argue and that you would think that um would be imperfect about that definition, sure. but I think that, that that that's the best. And in terms of being a person who is a quote unquote successful black woman who's getting a, gra- a black educator, a black education, um, well, <laughs> and giving one, <laughs> giving giving one, well, well, we'll see about that. But but uh, as a person who's receiving a graduate education, who I you I have a platform, I'm, I'm not living, I guess, in a, in a manner that people would normally associate with with blackness or would associate with not having um, privilege or whatever in in the world. And what I would say to that is that people can experience oppression and experience prejudice and it doesn't have to be I'm dying from it. It doesn't hmm. have to it doesn't have to be oppressive in the nature that I have zero economic advantage or zero economic clout. It doesn't have to be that. Sometimes oppression can be simply there's only so far that I can go or wow. I and I've talked about this um before but but semin- being in seminary while being a black woman wow. is a very interesting experience. Yes, I'm there as a, like my body is is there but my i'm not represented in my education mm. and it's constantly a fight in every single class that i've that i've been in virtually in seminary with with the exception of the classes that have been geared toward race and even right. then some of them i've had to i've had to push to see black women represented but in virtually every class that i've had in seminary there has been a sort of like a white male gaze yeah. that that I've had to fight through and say, well, this is the white male gaze. This is not centering my experiences. You're talking about Euro-American, the Euro-American church and how they're doing things. Well, I am an American and this is not my experience. Mm. And so, and, and having to challenge that and having to question that. And that is hard. And as a seminary student, that makes me have to work twice as hard. There are papers that I've written where I have had to work twice as hard, I feel, on those papers to be able to project enough thought, to be able to come to a thesis, to project enough thought that isn't just, that, that, that is something that, that I can use in my context, that, I, yeah. that, that speaks to me. So yeah. an example of that is for my modern theology class, um, I actually proposed, we, we had, there was a list of papers that we could write, like a list of topics on which we could write. None of them had anything to do, we had talked about liberation theology, we had talked about womanism, we had talked about some of those things, but none of those topics that were the predetermined topics were, were, in, the, were in the list. And so I asked my professor, because he said that if there was something that we wanted to do a paper on, we could, we could propose something and then he would approve it. And so I, I asked if I could, if I could write my, my paper on, um, liberation Christology, essentially. So Mm -hmm. I was looking at a lot of Cone. I was looking at God of the Oppressed. I was looking Mm -hmm. at a black theology of liberation. I didn't have a chance to get to the cross and the lynching tree because I had to buy the book. Oh goodness! Um, yep. Because I'm a, I'm an online student yeah. and I couldn't find the book anywhere in an, in an ebook format, and so I had to buy the book. And the book wasn't going to get there on time for me to write the paper. But that's a whole other part of working through this. 
So I had to come up with my, with my, with my own paper. I had to figure out how to research this because it wasn't in the course materials. We had discussed it, but there were no references in the course materials or the references were very thin. So I had to do all of this legwork that other students that were writing on some of these other topics in the class didn't, didn't have to do resources at their fingers. Just, just to be able to get the basic level of thought to be able to write this paper, let alone, and they want you in some to be able to expand and to be able to, to get new, to, to generate new thought. Well, I was doing all this work just to understand the basic level. I had a similar experience in seminary. Not, I, I think the gender aspect is going to, is enormously, exponentially more difficult too, but just being a black student was, uh, you had to have a curriculum within the curriculum. Yes. So there are the books that were assigned, which yes. are all Euro-American centric. And then there are the books that you need for the education that you need to get. Yes. Because this is the advice I give to, to every seminary student, um, really of any color, but particularly to racial and ethnic minorities. And I say, when you go in, be crystal clear as much as you can be on who you are called to serve, because that will dictate the curriculum you need to compile. And you're going to need to compile it. Yes. It's not going to be on the syllabus most times unless, as you say, it's a sort of racially and ethnic specific course, right? Yes. And then even that is weird, right? Like, because that's when you get all the black folks in class and all the minorities in class. Yeah. And I'm like, where are the white people? Because they need this class too. Yes. But um, <laughs> yes. but yeah, there's, there's all this extra labor and invisible labor that you have to do. And that's just for folks like us in grad school. Right. For me, when folks say, well, you're successful and racism isn't holding you back. I say two things. One, where, where might I be? Mm-hmm. If it weren't for racism, yeah, because I know where I am now, which has been a struggle like you just articulated um, and it's still a struggle. And then but but where could I be if race wasn't yes. as much of a factor? Yes. And then secondly, I also say none of us are free until we're all free. Mm-hmm. And so I live currently in the Delta, which is perennially one of the most impoverished areas in the entire United States. It is majority black where I am uh, in my particular city. That's not on accident. That's due to uh, the history of race-based chattel slavery, where you needed more slaves to work the land than you, than you had people who mm-hmm. owned it. It's due to the legacy of sharecropping, which is still recent. You have people in the 70s still doing sharecropping, essentially. Um, and then it's due to white flight, where uh, the people who had means got out of the area. And so this, this area where I live in has been losing population since 1970. Um, and so there are reasons that 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 it's impoverished, and most of the people who are below the poverty line, it's it's, it's got double the rate of the national poverty uh, level in this area where I live. Uh, that's due to a legacy of white supremacy and racism. And so, despite where I am, if all these people in my community are in the situation they're in. And you can trace that back to issues of racism and white supremacy, then we still got a race problem. So, yeah, what you said actually raises some really interesting questions for the work of anti-racism, specifically for people of color, because we 
can we we can either stay where we're at and sort of not push back and just sort of passively accept what's happened or we can push back against it and i think that your context is actually the inverse of mine mm-hmm. where you live in a live in a context where it's black people but it's in its majority black and they're still being oppressed by a minority i live in southwest missouri and a lot of the black people who lived there historically have left because of the levels of oppression that we experienced there was some lynching there were some there were some raids there were some different things that happened that black people said you know we're, we're out of here like we don't we don't want to be here yep. and so the, pe- the people who stayed it really it really it it raises very interesting questions for us because what do you do whenever the state so in a, in a context like yours where this is the status quo it's always been almost kind of this apartheid type thing yes. where there's where you know it's 80 90 percent black but the people in power are white and those are the people who are oppressing or the inverse of that it's 90 percent white and there's just a few black people do we do we hold on to the status quo or do we push back and pushing back comes with its own problems it comes with its own issues. Remaining in the status quo comes with its own issues. And that's where I think that we get that. I like the, the word that you use, the mushy middle. I really uh-huh. I really like that phrase. But I think that that's where you get a lot of the racial passivity in our own communities because we have been oppressed and beat down for so long that it's almost like, well, you know, the white people are letting us do this. Mm. It could be so much worse. There's, there's memory mm-hmm. of when the community was worse. And so it's like, well, you know, hey, we're at least getting to go to school yeah. without without people threatening to shoot us. Hey, we're at least getting some health care. We're getting some benefit that there can that there can almost be a fatigue where it's like, I just don't I don't want to push back. Well, that's a great point, because so much of so much of our work as black people is just surviving. Yes. <laughs> right. And, and, and just getting through the day or the week or whatever, or just persevering in your predominantly white workplace or school or church, that is in itself sort of an act of resistance. And then to, to, to be asked to go above and beyond that, Mm -hmm. the, the, the exhaustion and the weariness of just your day to day survival, especially if you're trying to raise children or something to, to be uh, proud of who they are in terms of race, ethnicity, or culture, and and how exhausting that can be, even as you yourself as an adult are still trying to do that. Um, and then to be asked to, to go out and do more because the people aren't free yet. I it, 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 This was true in the civil rights movement. There are a lot of black yes. people who are like, no, leave all that marching and stuff to to these other folks, to NAACP and SNCC and, and SCLC. We're, we're doing as much as we can, and we, we don't want to do any more. Or like you're saying, we've achieved a certain level and to be actively anti-racist would jeopardize that. And I yes. think that's different for black people who didn't have and mm-hmm. now they have as opposed to white people who have and are fear fear losing it. Yeah. That's different. That's a different dynamic there. Oh, yeah. And I think that I think of myself in my seminary context where it's like, well, I really want to make good grades. And so what do I do? Do I do all of the, the extra leg work or do I just sit back and and just let and just let it happen? It can be at work where it's like, do I do I push back? Yeah, their, their dress policy is racist, but I can just wear a wig and call it a day. I don't. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, hey, like I can I can just, you know, like so I, I 
think that there are, that there are a lot of black women that say, well, I can, I can wear a wig. I can wear a weave. I can, I can sort of you know, fake it till I make it in that respect. And that is, and I respect that position. I'm not, I'm not here to say, well, you know, there's people who are in the mushy. I think that the mushy middle for black people is different than the mushy middle for white people. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, think that, good. that the mushy middle for black people is a means of survival yeah. where the mushy middle for white people is laziness. Mm. It's passivity. Mm. And so whenever I say that people are racially passive, and I think that that's something that, that I probably need to say is that I'm not saying that they're passive as an indictment, like, oh, you're, you're racially passive because that passivity is I'm just trying to survive. So it's almost yeah. like, you know, yeah. don't start none, won't be none. Right. So you're just, you're just like, I, I don't see it. If I don't see it, then I don't have, then I don't have to deal with it. So I think that that's something that's important to highlight. But with that said, I think that that passivity can in a way be counterproductive to the work of anti-racism because it's very easy for people who engage in white supremacy to say, well, well, look at this person. This person just goes along to get along. You yeah. know, Jerome, who's at my workplace, he doesn't talk about all this black stuff. See, look, because you know how people are, they have one representative example <laughs> of black people and they think that every black person should think that way. And it's always one of the quote unquote good, good ones. ones. And so it's easy to be like, oh, well, you know, but Jerome over here, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't care about that Black Lives Matter stuff. He just, he just comes to work and he does what he's supposed to do. Or even in the church, where you have people who come into these these multi ethnic contexts and they're expected to just assimilate, and they're yeah. expect well, you know, hey, you know, Barbara over here, she's just going along to get along. See, this black stuff, it doesn't really matter. We can all we can yeah. all unite and we can all come together. And black folk consciously consciously deciding to do that because of what you're saying yeah. before. They're they're trying to survive, mm-hmm. or even it could be an ambition thing. They know that if they do talk yes. about this stuff, they're not going to get the same exactly. kind of platform they might get. Yeah, and that and that poses a, a some very difficult things, I think, for the anti-racism movement. I think that for me as somebody, I want to respect how a person lives their life and lives in their space. So for the black people who aren't out here in the streets every day fighting for freedom, I understand that. And I actually really, really respect that whenever it's coming from a place of my life is just so whatever that I'm just trying to survive. Yeah. I respect that. Now you bring in an, a very interesting dynamic where you have people who have the ambition and who are trying to achieve. And so who are actually working. I mean, it, you're almost that, that middle almost becomes the other end of people actually doing the work of white supremacy. And so sometimes we have people who, who are, are racially passive, but even bordering on that, doing the work of white supremacy for white people. Yeah. And that's something that I, I think we need to educate our people on and we need so, to, we need to talk about. Yeah. Because maybe not now, but <laughs> <laughs> it is a whole other topic, but just to introduce it, um, we often talk about tokenism as this horrible negative thing. There are some black people who want to take advantage of tokenism. Yes. And want so to make you, money yes. off of doing videos where they are the token, but Ooh, you didn't hear out. that from me. Watch out. Um, but even in, antebellum days you had the overseer Mm. and that wasn't always a white person sometimes it would be a black person who had such sort of had had so assimilated to white supremacy that the 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 white masters quote-unquote trusted them to oversee the other black slaves and why did people do that why did black people oversee other enslaved black people it's because it was advantageous 
to that overseer. They got certain privileges, certain rights, and even just certain uh, favoritism in terms of impression. Well, here's a good Negro, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that came with certain advantages. And and I don't think that's completely disappeared in, in our day and age. It looks different because yes. racism adapts, but there are still people who want to benefit from tokenism. But that is another That's podcast episode. But let's talk about practical steps. We talk about what anti-racism is, what it's not, what are what are non-racist and racist. But how do you be an anti-racist? What 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 do people have to do on a day-to-day basis to to call themselves or be considered anti-racist? I think that it is taking a posture of resistance and that might look different for different people. I think that one of the biggest things that black people can do, so I'm going to speak mostly to, to black people right now. One of the biggest things that I think that we can do is to interrogate our surroundings, to interrogate where we're at, who's there, why they're there, and not like actually go up to people, why are you here? But actually think about in our workplace, in our schools, we're in, our, in the different um, social spheres that we're in, who's around us and why are they there? Looking at what media we're consuming and why are we consu- why why are we watching this channel instead of that channel? So mm. so why why are we watching the shows on ABC instead of watching Bounce? I don't know if you've heard of the Bounce channel. It's like a it's like a yeah, it's it's a <laughs> it's some channel that just comes on over the air um in in my region that's all black. All okay. black shows, like okay. they show Family Matters, that type of thing. So it's like you're saying, like, I, am I who, who am I watching? Who am I listening to? Who am I who am I letting in my world? How am I thinking about my own people? Hmm. What are the ways in the subtle ways in which white supremacy have crept into my language? Has has crept into the ways that I interact with my own people or with other people of color. So that's just, so that's kind of the basic level where, where we are interrogating and looking at how whiteness has affected us as a people. That's good. For white folks, I think that the anti-racism, it's a matter of flipping a switch from saying, well, I'm not racist and I'm, ag- and I'm against racism to actually working to dismantle white supremacy mm. and doing the, doing the work of once again, like I said, I mean, I guess some of the steps are some are the same looking at your surroundings, who's there, why are they there, but also giving up some of your power and privilege and not in this white savory kind of way, like, oh, I am making a space for this black person to Charity, do something. Yeah. Don't mm-hmm. do, don't do that nonsense. But saying, I realize that in my space, there are no black people. So I'm going to start asking the hard questions in my church. I'm going there to start asking, wait a minute, we're in this area that's 70% that's 70% black. Why is there an all-white church in an, in an all-black neighborhood? Yeah. Yeah. And start asking those questions of I'm in this space. Am I gentrifying this mm-hmm. this this space? If I'm if I'm going to see Black Panther and everybody's if I'm going to see Black Panther 2 and everybody is dressing up and I'm going to the to the movie theater where there's a lot of black people in a black neighborhood, am I gentrifying this space by being here? So yeah. can I just, so can I wait to go see Black Panther the day after opening day and let the black folks have wow. opening day to go see Black Panther? It's, it's that type yeah. of, it's that type of thing of realizing who you are, where you're at, what space you're in, and not only who's there, but who's not there and not being a savior, but, but asking the hard questions to, to get spaces to change. And to get spaces to shift and mold and and move to where whiteness is being dismantled and disassembled and all and that I good stuff. I think just to add to that, a lot of 
a litmus test of whether we're being anti-racist or non-racist is what we let slide and yes. what we let pass. Uh, it, and, and especially in like casual conversation, yes. it is so easy as a white or a black person, although the reasons might be different for not speaking up, but it is so easy to let a, a bad joke or a, a false assumption in casual conversation just slide. Yes. And like for black people, I get it. You want to pick your battles. This may mm-hmm. not be you on your lunch break yes. and you got to pick up your laundry or whatever. Uh, it may not be the time and place to, to, to right. interrupt racism right then. Um, but especially for white people, it can be it can happen so often. It can happen with the people who are close to you, whether family members or friends or co-workers. And it is it would it would you would lose nothing to keep silent. Yes. And so it's so much easier to do that. But anti-racism would do the hard work of interrupting racism, even if it's costly. Yes. And and I, th- I, I look to those everyday examples because I think that's where the rubber hits the road, is if you're willing in your sort of day-to-day normal average interactions to jump in, that's helpful. Obviously, there are much bigger things. And I look at issues like police brutality, mass incarceration, the role of local prosecutors. I look at uh, public education. I look at health care. And so to me, being anti-racist is saying it's not just interpersonal. Yes. It's not just how I'm relating to individuals in my life. It's about the systems that are set up that perpetuate inequality based on racial lines. And and what are we doing about those kinds of things? Yes. Which is going to get into how you vote. Yes, well. Not just who you vote for, but but what policies in, in particular that, that, that you're calling Congress people about or um, advocating for. So it's a big topic, but I think the, the, the big idea is it's not just enough not to be racist. You have to be anti-racist. Yes, yes. So. And it can't be just an intellectual exercise either. I think that it's very easy to just read a bunch of books and to listen to the podcast. We want you to listen to the podcast, but it can be very easy to just say, well, you know, I, hey, I listen to Pass the Mic. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to all these other podcasts. I'm woke, and, man. And, and, and to be like, I'm woke, but you're not actually doing anything. And I think that is very easy for us black people to say like, well, you know what? I am not aiding white supremacy like i'm just i'm just i'm not but i I don't want to agitate i don't want to i don't want to stir the pot and i'm not calling black people to to agitate because like you said i mean like it's it's survival sometimes but i think that 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 all of us if we just if we take steps toward dismantling white supremacy so if it's as simple as casting a vote which i mean that simple thing it actually is is like a huge thing and it's big it's actually really really huge but if we do something as simple as go to the ballot box and cast a vote and casting votes for people who are not going to to at least on the surface have po- there's that's a whole complex thing because <laughs> that's a whole complex thing but at least their, their policies trend more toward not promoting white supremacy more than toward promoting white supremacy we kind of voting for the lesser of the two evils and sometimes if we do that type of work if we do the type of work and and demand representation in in our movies in our in our shows and that type of thing if we do the work of in interpersonal relationships calling people to account for their for their words and and deeds we've done a big a big work yeah 
If you like what you hear, and I know you do, Allie Henney has her own show coming up. It's called Combing the Roots. She will be talking about these topics and more. Allie, we can't wait for that. We're so glad you're part of the Witness Podcast suite. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review to pass the mic. And when Allie's show comes out, do the same for her. Appreciate you being on. Thank you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.